51 years ago, Time magazine had a front cover, black, and printed on it in red, Is God Dead? About a week ago, Time magazine had a cover, black background, and printed on it in red, Is Truth Dead? How do we know if something is true? Fake news is sort of the in phrase at the moment. One way we can know things are true is if you get information from a variety of independent sources. In the news recently has been the report into the Hillsborough disaster. Part of the evidence that the police reports have been fixed was they all had much the same phrasing in them. And in fact, one of the policemen who wrote one of the reports has actually said that somebody came down from London and said, you must include this in your report. So if everything is exactly the same, that is not actually evidence of truth that is evidence of something being fixed. When we come to look at the Gospels, which are writing about Jesus' last time, and some of the things I'm going to talk about today, the different Gospels don't all say the same thing. And a lot of people try and get into a lot of convoluted arguments, trying to get the, everything so it uh, relates together. But that is not something we should be too surprised about if you have got different eyewitnesses giving reports of what they have observed. Interestingly, also this week, I came across an account of a lecture given by Dr. Simon Gathercole, who, if you haven't come across his name, listen out for it, because I think you'll hear it being him being mentioned more and more. He works in the Department of Divinity at Cambridge University, but he's also an elder of Eden Baptist Church, which, uh, seeing my two nieces got married there, gives him a bit of a tick in my uh, book anyway. But his speciality is looking at the Gospels, both the ones we have in the Bible and these other Gospels which are wafting around. And in this lecture, he looks at the place names in the Gospels. And he uses a technique used by historians. Now, in 1993, Fergus Miller, who was professor of ancient history at Oxford University, wrote, the Gospels provide in extremely vivid and in geographical terms quite extensive view of the area of Jewish settlement in Jesus' time. The thing is, ancient historians don't have any problem with the Gospels being true. It's theologians who seem to have the problem with the Gospels being true. And it, that's perfectly understandable, because if you're a historian, you just want to know about people's lives. It doesn't really have any impact in what you do. But 
if the Gospels are true, from a theological point of view, that has a big impact on you. And therefore, uh, some people would want to query the truth because they don't want to face up to the impact. But the technique Simon Gathercole used was to look at the place names in the Gospels and see, are these place names recorded in other ancient literature of the same period? And what he finds is that of 27 place names in the Gospels, 22 of them appear in other literature of the period. So 80% in round numbers. One of the other documents you have from that period is a history of the Jews written by uh, somebody called Josephus, and he did the same approach with Josephus. He mentions 44 places, of which 35 are mentioned in other documents of the time, 80%. So basically what he's showing is that the Gospels have got the same amount of confidence we can have in, the his, in how historically accurate they are as other documents written at that time. When you come to these other apocryphal Gospels, which people talk about, Gospel of Thomas and so on, what you fi he finds is either they don't mention geographical places at all, or if they do, they're very vague, and if they're not vague, they're wrong. So the fact that the Gospels, the places mentioned, tie in with what other people are writing at that time can give us confidence that we're actually reading documents written at that time by people who actually observed what was happening. So we can have confidence in the scriptures of them being true. Even if, as I say, there's some things when we look at these gospel accounts are not exactly the same. The gospel I've chosen to follow from is Mark. So if you want to move to Mark 14, the words will go up on the screen as well when I get to them. As I mentioned before, out of the Gospels, we have one, Luke, who says he approached his uh, Gospel as a historian. He went and talked to people, got the evidence. The other three Gospels, Matthew and John, were two of the disciples, so they were there anyway. Mark, for this period of time, also would have been an eyewitness. And he has a walk-on, or probably a run-off part, in the, this chapter a bit later than uh, where I'm going to be looking at, which is verses 51 and 52. So I'm going to read Mark 14, starting at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. <coughs> then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. As Sam said last week, when you look in the Gospels, a third to a quarter of them are based around this week, which we're looking at, running from Palm Sunday up to Easter Sunday. Therefore, there's far too much to cover in four sermons. So therefore, I'm going to have to miss out a lot of uh, the material, and if I miss out your favourite bit, my apologies, but... It's inevitable it's going to happen somewhere. Equally, as I looked into it, the more you look into it, the more questions it raises and the more you want to look further. So there's things which, you know, I thought, oh, it'd be nice and easy doing this, and then, well, not particularly, but as you look into it, you think more and more, well, how does that fit in, and why that, and so on. So some of the things I'm going to say can be developed further but we haven't got time to do all of it. But to get the hang of what's going on here, we need a little bit of history and a little bit of geography. Otherwise, it just seems to be 
sort of various random things happening and then suddenly Jesus institutes what we usually call the Last Supper. A thousand years before these events, King David captured Jerusalem. And since then, if you were in Israel at the time of the Passover, you had to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Now, Josephus, this is a Jewish historian I mentioned, writing two or three decades later, said that on the Passover, two million people went up to Jerusalem. Now, whether it was that number then, whether that was rounded up, is a bit immaterial. You've got masses of people from all over Israel have congregated on Jerusalem. There wouldn't have been, and there wasn't enough space in the city walls for all of those people to stay. So therefore, Jesus and his friends are staying with one of their friends outside the city in this place called Bethany. Now, with what I said with Simon Gathercole's research, Bethany is one of the five places uh, in the Gospels which isn't mentioned in other literature of that time. There is other archaeological evidence, but it's not uh, literature evidence. But as far as we know, it's about two miles outside Jerusalem. So, sort of a relatively easy walk in. Curiously, he stays with somebody called Simon the leper. You, if you stayed with a leper, you would become unclean. If you were unclean, you couldn't keep the Passover which seems to be a bit of an issue. So presumably, and this is an assumption, Simon, it's rather than Simon the leper, it probably ought to be Simon the former leper, because probably Jesus has healed him. And therefore he's grateful to Jesus and gives him hospitality. But, you know, you can just get these little bits in the Bible and you think, that's, you know, you, it just passes by, but when you think about it, it gives you evidence of what Jesus did and why people followed him. So, because they are staying at Bethany, they can't keep the Passover in Bethany. So, that's, they got to keep the Passover in Jerusalem. So, that's why Jesus sends two disciples to go and get everything sorted out in Jerusalem. And because not everybody could stay in Jerusalem, the understanding was that if you had a house in Jerusalem, if you had an available room, you made it available for somebody else to uh, keep the Passover there. By tradition, the house where they ha had the Passover was the house of uh, Mark's father. So... Uh, whether that's true or not, we don't know, but Mark does appear a bit later in the chapter, so it is possible. Now, when Sam was sort of divvying this up, in theory, what I've got is what we would call Maundy Thursday. And then next week, I'm going to do what we would call Good Friday. But of course, to the Jews, 
They didn't divide their days from midnight to midnight. They divided their days from sunset to sunset. So, within this, the first day, which they call in verse 12 the first day of unleavened bread, is the day before the Passover is kept. You need to get everything ready. You need to take your lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. Now when we talk lamb in this context, we need to think more, uh, if you use the Cumbrian term, hogget, rather than spring lamb. In other words, it's a lamb which has been out on the mountains for a year. So it's one year old. It's not sort of, uh, as you'll get spring lamb in this country in about three to four months' time, sort of a young lamb which has just been fattened up in lowland pastures. So you had all of this to do, and then you needed to keep the Passover on the next day, which started at sunset, and you had to keep the Passover between sunset and midnight, for reasons I'll come back to a bit later. So when we get to verse 17... That is the start of a new day. So when it's evening and the twelve come together in verse 17, it's now the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's the actual day of the Passover. Now during the Passover meal, they would have eaten roast lamb, having brought the uh, sacrificed lamb back. There'd have been at least three breakings of loaves of bread and at least four passings of cups of wine taken during that time. So therefore, that helps explain why in Luke you get two cups while in the other Gospels you get one. We don't know which of the ones Jesus did this at, but its implication is towards the end. And to start with, what we have recorded is that Jesus says he took the bread, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. So the first thing with the bread, what it is emphasising as he gave the bread out to his disciples, that they are one with him. Interestingly, when the early church in Rome went multi-site, to use the modern term, they wanted to keep the thing that it was one loaf, one body. So in the early church in Rome, one of the deacon's duties was after the lead elder had blessed the bread in whatever was the main church, was that they then took some of that loaf to the other sites around Rome so that everybody ate from the same loaf. Recently, Sam and I had the issue to deal with that 
we became aware, well, we knew it a bit anyway, but became more aware to us that we have people in the church who can't deal with gluten or wheat. So what do we do if we have one loaf and you've got people who uh, would react badly to constituents in that? Now, each church has to make its own decisions as to how it balances the different issues. What we decided was that we felt it was more significant to keep one loaf than to keep wheat. Apart from anything else, any wheat, we don't know whether it was actually a wheat loaf anyway, but any wheat in Jesus' time would have had a much lower gluten content than now, so it wouldn't have been uh, the same. So I don't know if anyone particularly noticed, but for the last two times we've broken bread, there wasn't any uh, wheat involved and we've gone over to using a gluten-free loaf. Because we think it is important to keep the fact that we could break one loaf. If anybody is aware of sources of kosher uh, oat, gluten-free oat bread without yeast, let us know and then we'll be able to cover just about everybody. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the, the only uh, kosher, gluten-free stuff I can find, uh, all the uh, uh, consumer reports say by the time it comes through the post, you've got a box full of crumbs. So therefore, uh, I don't think that's going to be an option. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to give thanks for the bread, and then break it, and then we're going to pass it round and you know we do, as you probably noticed we don't always do things exactly the same way every time you know we have the freedom within the general pattern to vary things what I'd like you to do uh, today is when you get the bread keep it and then we'll all eat the bread together as a sign that we are doing this as one body so Lord, we thank you that on that last day, on the day of your crucifixion, you took the bread and you broke it, giving thanks. And we thank you, Lord, that as we take this bread we're reminded that we are of one body with you. And Lord, we thank you for all that that means to us, that we're no longer on our own, but you are our Lord. We've been brought into your family. Come in. We're then told that Jesus took a cup and poured in wine. He 
he would also have poured in water. Because one of the reasons the Romans knew that the British were really uh, heathen and pagan was they drank their wine neat without putting any water in it. Well, any civilised person uh, always mixed water in their wine. And it was, would have been the normal thing to have about the same volume, twice the volume of water with the wine. Now, we don't normally do that, but we can, we don't have to. But we notice here that when Jesus is talking about it, when he said, this is my body with the bread, it was just a bare statement. When it comes to the cup, he says, it's the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And this is where the before midnight bit becomes significant. Because the Passover was remembering what happened when the tenth plague attacked Egypt before Moses took the people of Israel out of Egypt. It is no accident that Jesus was crucified at Passover. Because what happened with the people of Israel in Egypt was a picture for what God was going to do in Jesus. Because what the people had to do on the night before midnight in Egypt was kill the lamb, put blood on the sides, doorposts at the sides, on the lintel across the top of the uh, house in which they were staying and they had to stay inside because at midnight God sent an angel of death and the firstborn of anyone, any household which was not thus protected died from the firstborn of Pharaoh down to I think it records it as the animals in the store we find that in Exodus chapter 12 verses 29 and to 32. So Exodus 12 and 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. So, in Egypt... The Passover meal was held before midnight to protect the people of Israel because God was going to kill the firstborn in the land after midnight. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus instituted this meal, 
they kept the Passover, they kept this meal before midnight because later in that day God was going to allow his firstborn to be killed so that we could have our freedom in the same way as the firstborn of Egypt being killed enabled the people of Israel at that time to have their freedom. So as I say, it's no accident that this all happened at Passover. Jesus was the one who died so that we don't have to die. This is why it's the blood of the covenant, because it seals the promise between God and his people. So as we take the wine, let us remember that it's, we're remembering that Jesus died for us so that we don't need to. Oh Lord, as we take the wine, we thank you, Lord, for your death for us so that we don't need to die. We thank you, Lord, that you instituted this memorial of bread and wine so that we remember that we are part of your body for your blood shed for us. But Lord, we thank you also that we're told in your word that this is not something we will do forever, but something which we will do until you return. And then we will see you face to face and the need for this memorial will no longer be there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. As we bring this part of our meeting to a close, just mention, you no, know, we break bread at least once a month on a Sunday but it's not something which just has to be done in this kind of context but when God's people meet together so in growth groups or other times when people meet you know, it's perfectly uh, acceptable to break bread and share the wine as well if the band can come back up let us continue in our worship and as we look at what happens at this time of Holy Week it tends to make us reflective makes us very aware of what Jesus has done for us but also it's because it is serious because it actually changes our lives it means it's actually something we can celebrate because of the difference Jesus has made through his death and his resurrection